everyone. If we haven't met before, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors at CA Church, and thanks so much for joining us today. Our teaching text this week is from Philippians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible handy, why don't you turn there right now, Philippians chapter 4. And while you do that, I'll just note this, that this summer at our Town Center campus, we've been in a sermon series walking through the book of Philippians. And this is a letter from Paul the Apostle. He's writing to the church in Philippi, and he's, he's writing from prison. We've been walking through this letter sort of verse by verse, section by section. And in the passage we're going to look at today, Paul addresses some pretty big topics. He looks at at conflict. He looks at anxiety. And then he leans in on the only true sense of source of peace for the human heart. Some themes that I think are at least a little bit relevant to the day and age we find ourselves in today. So let's get right into it. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. And I'll be sharing from the NIV Bible. Paul says this, verse 2, I plead with you, Eodia, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companions, help these women, since they have been contending at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together and then we'll unpack these verses together. Well, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge your presence here with us today as as we look at your word as we seek to learn what it is that you spoke through your servant Paul to the, to the church in Philippi, and that you want to speak to us today, a church in Coquitlam, BC. And so speak to us, we pray, by your spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the church at large, especially in the West, has become increasingly divided. And maybe in this moment, it might be the most divided it's ever been in our lifetime. There's a number of cultural commentators and church health specialists who are predicting that coming out of this pandemic, there's going to be an increase in church splits, there's going to be a huge amount of resignation of senior leaders, and a growing disunity within the local church throughout the Western world. And we're already seeing it happen. Think about it. There's so much controversy that's risen even just in the last 16 months between masks or no masks, vaccines, no vaccines, systemic racism, police reform, politics, policies, response to injustice. There's controversy about whether we ever should have stopped gathering physically throughout the pandemic or whether we regathered too soon as once we were able how the church should respond to our cultural moment, how the church shouldn't respond to our cultural climate. And and this polarization on both sides of the coin isn't unique to the church. It's, It's our culture as a whole, but sadly the conflict and division that plagues our society has also penetrated the church, has brought division between brothers and sisters in Christ whose love for one another, whose unconditional acceptance of one another, regardless of differences, is meant to display the love of Christ to the world. He says, you'll know that they'll know you belong to me, Jesus says, by your love for one another. 
and yet we've allowed walls to be built up between us. We've allowed differences of opinions, many times on secondary issues, to bring division and disunity to the family of God. Maybe for some of us, we're not so loud on these boisterous, kind of big hot button topics, but conflict and disunity invades our relationships in other ways. In our pride, or our selfishness, or our self-righteousness gets in the way and causes us to say and do things in our community, in our families, in our marriage relationships that brings pain, that severs relationships, and that pushes others away. Well, Paul opens chapter four with this plea for unity, for reconciliation. He says, I plead with you, Eodia, I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, alongside Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. See, these two women uh, who are named here are two of the very few names that Paul mentions throughout the whole letter to the Philippian church. Apparently, he saw this disunity and strife as a big enough issue to draw direct attention to it and to plea for it to be dealt with in a healthy way. And these weren't some newcomers to the church. These, these weren't some, some recent converts who were still wrapping their head around what it meant to live in unity and Christian community. These two women were his co-laborers in the gospel, my true companions, he calls them. He seems to indicate that these were two primary leaders in the church in Philippi. They'd been instrumental in bringing the gospel to the city. They'd been faithfully advancing the mission of God. They were close friends of Paul the apostle himself, and now they're experiencing conflict, strife disagreement between them. And it's a big enough deal that Paul chooses to zero in on it and say, hey, this needs to be dealt with. This is not good. And I wonder if maybe in the midst of the daily grind of leading and doing ministry that these two leaders had, had simply lost the plot line. They'd forgotten why they were even doing what they were doing in the church. Uh, we don't know what exactly they were quarreling about, but whatever it is, it had gotten between them and it was distracting them from what matters most, and that's Christ and him crucified. They let these things come between them. Maybe they were majoring on the minors, and far too often, isn't that the case with us? Far too often, that's the case for me. I let my pride and my ego get in the way. I assume motives in other people. And even if I don't say it out loud, I can so easily let bitterness grow in my heart towards people who are deeply loved and called by God because they don't do things the way that I would do them or because their personality rubs me the wrong way or they're a little grumpy with me and it hurts my feelings. And, and Paul's not advocating that we should just sweep that under the rug and pretend it doesn't happen on, a, on account of, of Christian unity. He's not advocating for a passive approach to dealing with conflict. He's saying, deal with it. Even get help from other leaders in the church if you need to, but don't harbor in it and let it get go on and on and distract you from the important gospel restorative work to which you've been called. Conflict dealt with poorly has destroyed many churches over the last 2,000 years. And that's why Paul is drawing attention to it. And he's saying to the church in Philippi and, and to churches like us who would come years and years into the future, he's saying, conflict is going to come up. Even great friends, even co-laborers in the gospel are going to get in a tiff from time to time. You're going to disagree. You're going to get bothered by one another at times. But there's this desperation in the letter as he says, I urge you to sort things out, to not let this divide you and bring disunity in the church. And this plea for unity that Paul gives to the Philippian church, this is consistent with Jesus' own prayer for his church in John chapter 17. Jesus himself says it like this, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, 
that all of them may be one. Father, just as you and me, you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Wow, what a prayer from Jesus. Did you catch his emphasis there? It's not the theology or the doctrine that identifies a church as Jesus' people in the world. As important as that is, it's not their sexual ethics, their stance on morality, their worship music. It's not even their evangelistic initiatives. It's their unity. It's the love for one another. It's the stubbornly loyal kind of love through thick or thin, the I'm not going anywhere kind of commitment. And that's what Paul is reminding Eodia and Syntyche and the whole church in Philippi. You are family. Whether you want to be or not right now, he points to to the Lamb's book of life and he reminds them, these women are the chosen people of God, our citizens of heaven, the body of Christ, so treat each other as such. And before we move on from these verses, I just want to ask you this, you know, is, is there a Christian brother or sister that you're at odds with? Is there a grudge between you and a friend or a relative? Like Paul does here to the church in Philippi, let me urge you, go and make things right. In Jesus' in famous Sermon on the Mount, he says, you know, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, and there you remember a brother or a sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, first go and reconcile to them and then come and offer your gift. According to Jesus, it's, it's more important for us to be at peace and unity with brothers and sisters than to bring a sacrifice before the Lord. He's saying, you know, if you want communion with God, you also have to be in communion with fellow believers. You can't have one without the other. It's impossible to be right with God and to hate your brother or sister. Elsewhere in the New Testament, actually in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul writes it like this. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you. And and that's an important note because sometimes the other person is absolutely unwilling to reconcile. And that's difficult because you can't force them to reconcile. But as far as it depends on you, in other words, if there's anything that you can do to resolve this issue, even humbling yourself, taking a blow to your pride, live at peace with one another. So maybe I'll just say it again. Is there anyone in your life that the Holy Spirit might be compelling you to reach out to, to reconcile with, uh, to do whatever it depends on you to live at peace with them? Okay, back to our text in Philippians. To sum up these first few verses, Paul is pointing to a restless heart that these women are facing that comes from conflict, that comes from disunity between them. Then a few verses later in verse 6, he shifts his emphasis to a restlessness that comes from anxiety and worry. In verse 6, he says, be anxious about nothing. And if you've lived through the last 16 months, you might agree with me that that's a little easier said than done. Be anxious about nothing. That seems a little idealistic, especially when it appears that the whole world is spiraling out of control, when it feels that you've lost control of your own life, when many people don't have stability of their jobs, when relationships are on the fritz, when you have a deadline at work that seems impossible to make, when you face health challenges that could take your life. Be anxious about nothing? Is that kind of disposition even possible? Can we truly be anxious about nothing? And if we can obtain that kind of anxiousness and that, or anxious free life, how do we get there? How do we achieve that? Well, before answering that question, I want to take a closer look at this word anxious or what some translations have called worry. 
Because I think it's important to note what Paul's not saying here is he's, and when he says be anxious about nothing, he isn't saying don't care about anything or embrace a kind of careless state of being. He's not advocating for a lazy, fair demeanor. I think it's important to articulate the difference between anxiety or worry and caring deeply about something or someone. See, it's not wrong to be concerned, to show care, to be troubled by a situation that's going on. That's natural. That's normal. That's human. We see this even in the life of Jesus, that he was concerned about the people he loved, that he was grieved by evil and disaster. When there was a death among his close friends, he wept, he felt it, he was worried and concerned. But, but worry is different than concern. It's different from, from concern or care. In a, in a strange way, worry is a means of trying to take control. Here's what Webster's Dictionary defines worry as. It says to give way to anxiety or unease, to allow one's mind to dwell on, on difficulty or troubles. Or another definition is like this, a state of anxiety and uncertainty over actual or potential problems. And I don't know if you're like me at all in this, but I have this tendency to overthink things especially negative things, to dwell on the what ifs and to imagine all the ways that something could go wrong. And sometimes that drives me to work really hard, to put in the extra work, to ensure things go just right, to hustle, to ensure the best possible outcomes. But more often than not, that drive comes from worry, from anxiousness, from a state of, of anxiousness that inspires me to go, 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 often beyond my limits and ultimately at the expense of my soul. It's not bad to be concerned about something, to look ahead at potential pitfalls and do whatever necessary to avoid those pitfalls. That's just wisdom. Or to think critically about a decision that needs to be made, to care deeply about someone and their well-being. You could even argue that's a good thing. But dwelling on those actual or potential problems that could occur, what Paul is getting at here is he's saying, the presence of worry will rob you of your peace and position you as the God of your life giving you the illusion that you're in control, making you believe that you, you, have, you have to come through for yourself, forgetting that the only reason you even have breath in your lungs and are able to do what it is that you're doing right now is because God put that breath in your lungs and gifted you to do it. That all of us and all that we have are his, that he's the only one that's capable of sustaining us. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 26. He said, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of your worries add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the fields grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of them. If this is how God clothes the grass of the fields, which, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you you have little faith, do not worry. So going back to our passage in Philippians, Paul's pointing to the restlessness of our souls. And whether the restlessness comes from conflict that's happening with others, as we saw in verse two and three, or, 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 or the conflict comes from within, from anxiety and worry, like in verse six, he's contradicting uh, or he's contrasting a restless soul with a deep and lasting peace, a peace that transcends circumstances and momentary affliction. Something that all of us are longing for, aren't we? A rest for our souls. Paul's saying, you want peace? It's not gonna come by proving that you're right, by arguing and quarreling with others to try to prove that you're something or someone. You want peace? It's not gonna come by worrying. You're not gonna add a single day to your life by fearing that tomorrow's not gonna come. You want peace? 
It's not gonna come by trying to control everything on your own. That's only gonna make you more anxious and troubled. If you want peace, it's, it's, it's actually gonna come by surrendering control. But peace doesn't come from just the absence of something, from the absence of fear and anxiety and worry. Peace comes from the presence of someone, and that's God himself. And Paul instructs us in this passage that the way that we're to get peace for our restless souls is through surrendering control to the God of the universe who sustains all things, who has the power over all things, even our current stressful situations at hand. And not only is he in control, but he's also good. He's also for us. He also wants the best for us. This week, as I was thinking about this idea of surrender and control, I was thinking about my little daughter, Kinsley who's uh, two and a half right now. Maybe you've seen her around if you've been at one of our physical services. Uh, but she refuses to, to submit control at all costs. Her mantra might be, you know, I, I do what I want whenever I want to do it and don't try to stop me. And it can be cute at times, especially as a two-year-old, but, but she legitimately thinks that she knows best in every situation. Just yesterday, we were, we were making a smoothie together and she loves putting in all the fruit and then closing the lid on the blender, pushing the button and starting it up. And, and I love doing it with her. But she's in this stage where she wants to do everything by herself. And so yesterday we made the smoothie and then I was pouring it into the cups. And, and while we were in the middle, I was in the middle of pouring it, she grabbed the blender from me in the, in the middle of the pour, thinking that she had the strength and the power to hold up the blender and pour the stream smoothly into the cup. She grabbed it and, and I think it might, must have been a lot heavier than she anticipated. So the smoothie ended up all over the counter. And so we're cleaning up the mess and, and we made another smoothie. But I was wondering as I was cleaning up that mess, if that's sometimes what God sees with us. He's like, you wanna pour the smoothie from the blender? You can do it. But let me bear some of the weight of it with you. Let me, let me point you in the direction of your cup. Let's do it together. Because you can't actually hold it up by yourself. You don't need to, I'm right here. And I love to hold the blender with you. Peace comes from submitting control to the one who is in control. And maybe you think, well, that's a great theological concept. That's a cute analogy and, and, and it's a great idea to surrender control to God. But yet again, it's easier said than done. How do we surrender control? How do we live into this peace? Well, thankfully, Paul gives us some keys. The passage is just chocked full of advice on how to encounter the peace of God. And namely, Paul, Paul points to three things, uh, three ways for us to find peace in the midst of restlessness. And those keys are our prayer and pondering and practice. And yes, I just used three P words for my three main points. Let's look at them one at a time. The first one is this, prayer and petition. Here's something really interesting that, that Paul points out in verse six. We already walked through the first half of the verse where he says, do not be anxious about anything. But he goes on to say, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And I was struck by the order of this sentence. It's a little counterintuitive, no? You know, I would likely order these steps a little bit differently. I would think, you know, you make your request to God and then when he gives you your request or if he gives you your request, then you thank him. But that's not what it says. You thank him as you're making your requests. Why? Why do I thank him while I'm making my request? Shouldn't I wait to see if he does what I ask him to do before I thank him? Paul says, no, you make your requests and you thank him, acknowledging that he is in control and he knows what's best for you. And then thank him for whatever the outcome will be. And we're never gonna find contentment. We're never gonna find peace for our souls unless we get this. 
See, God didn't make the world a place with sorrow and death and suffering. He didn't. But he has a plan to renew it. He has a plan to, to get it back, to restore it to its original design. Romans 8.28 says this, you know, we know that in all things God works for, for good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purposes. We know that he's weaving all these things together and working amidst the pain and the brokenness. And he's using the things that he hates in the world, the sin and the pain and the brokenness. And he's weaving all the circumstances that you walk through together. And he's using it for your good and for his glory. Think about this. On the day that Jesus was crucified, all his friends would have likely been in around and looking at him up at the cross. And they probably thought to themselves, how can this be? After all the good he did, after all the healing and the teaching and the miracles, there was so much potential here. How could God bring anything good out of this? I can't believe this is happening. There's absolutely no way that God could bring anything good out of this. And yet they were looking at the greatest thing that God had ever done towards the redemption of the world. And that's a prime example of what God is doing in every one of our hearts. Even the terrible things that happen to you, he's working out for good. He's weaving it all together to bring about what's ultimately good and best for you. Here's a simple example from my life, a silly example. Um, but when I was in college, I was absolutely infatuated by this girl that was there. I'm not talking about Jorley, my wife. This is a different girl. But I thought this girl was, was everything I needed in a girlfriend, and a wife. She was this great girl, and things were moving along nicely. I told her that I liked her. She said she felt the same way about me, and it seemed, seemed that everything that, 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 that I could have dreamed of was happening. And then things changed. Her feelings changed. She decided she didn't feel the same way about me. She didn't feel good about pursuing a relationship, and my 18-year-old heart was broken. And I prayed, God, please let this work out. Please help her to see how amazing I am. Please, please make this work. I need this to work, God, please. And God didn't answer my prayer. And she and I grew apart and we never dated in the end. But here's the thing. In not answering my, my really naive 18-year-old prayer, it's like God was saying, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give him or her what they would have asked for if they knew everything that I know. I thought that what I needed was, was to get into this relationship with the girl in college. I thought she would complete me. I thought she was the best thing for me. But I didn't know that just a few years later, I'd meet a girl named Jorley, who I'd fall in love with and whom I'd start a beautiful family with and who would love me and challenge me and continually point me to Jesus. I, I couldn't see the whole picture. But in, in not answering my prayer in that silly example, it's like God was saying, when a child of mine makes a request, I always give them what they would ask for if they knew everything that I know. Do you believe that? To the degree that we believe that, we will have peace. Make your request known with thanksgiving. The second key that Paul gives us uh, in receiving the peace of God is this idea to ponder, to think, or to meditate. Look at verse 8. He says, you know, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And there's so, so many books and podcasts and apps that are out that teach us about mindfulness or meditation right now. And generally what's taught in our culture about these, this exercise of meditation is that in order to reach a state of Zen or peace, that you should empty your mind. Forget about your circumstances for a little while. Escape in order to de-stress and achieve a sense of peace. 
Or self-help books might encourage you in a slightly different way that if you're stressed or anxious that you should picture yourself on a beach, wind blowing in your hair, go to your happy place for a few moments every day and empty your mind, escaping this place that you're currently in and letting your imagination take you to a peaceful and safe place. And then after your time of meditation, you can go back to the chaos of, chaos of your life uh, with maybe a slower heart rate from those moments of escape. But in reality, the same problems and weight of responsibility that you had before is still on your shoulders now. That's not what we see here. Paul doesn't teach us that we should seek to escape our circumstances, but he, instead he says, bring your needs, the very real things that you're going through, the chaos, the brokenness of your life, bring it before God through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, casting your cares and your burdens on him. And then we meditate on what is true. We fix our gaze and, and fill our minds with what is pure and right. And this serves to, to reorient our hearts and our minds and our imaginations to one, towards the one who holds all things and knows all things and who is actually capable of holding the weight for us that feels so crushing. Notice the list that Paul says to ponder, to think about, to meditate on. The first few are more knowledge or focused on mind. He says, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, think about these things. But then he moves more towards the heart towards the affections of our heart and what we love. He goes on, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. And it's like he's saying that, that as God, as Jesus himself occupies the longings of our soul, the deepest affections of our heart, as we ponder, as we take an inventory of why he is faithful, why he's trustworthy, why he's beautiful, why he's so good, it serves to reorient our hearts and minds to love him above all else. And those other things that seem so important that we had been obsessing over begin to take up a little less real estate in our hearts. And we're reminded that, that even if these things don't pan out the way we think they should, even if we fail, even if, whatever it is, that we're loved by God and he won't love us anymore if we succeed and kill it, and he won't love us any less if we fail. Oftentimes we get so stressed out or full of worry and anxiousness because we've given something or someone too much control of our hearts. Thinking that if these things don't work out, it's gonna destroy us. But we need to meditate and remind our hearts, fill our minds with what is true. And as we do that, the peace of God will rest on us as we submit to the outcome that he allows it to happen in our lives. And then the last one, that Paul says is practice. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you, he says. Pastor David talked about this last week in his sermon and he encouraged us to look at the Christ-like character that we see in other followers of Jesus and then imitate them. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, follow me as I follow Christ. Don't just listen to me. Don't just read this letter and do nothing with it. Don't just see what I do and then stand around and clap for me and cheer me on, but put it into practice. Join me in this. And as you do, you too will experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. According to Paul, receiving the peace of God is a journey. It's something we grow in. That as we practice these things, as we grow up in our faith, we'll experience more and more of the peace of God. Continuing in prayer, continually bringing our petitions before him, continuing to meditate on what is good and true and right and lovely, learning more about his character. It's actually gonna help us to become more and more at peace as you learn of his character and trustworthiness throughout the generations. As you pray with a heart of thanksgiving, 
meditating on him, over time you will find your perspective will shift. And then you'll wander again. <laughs> and, and you'll need to come back to these things and these practices yet again. You'll need to reorient your heart to be reminded that, that you are not the savior of the world and, and, and you're not anyone else's savior. But it's a journey and it takes practice. The scripture calls this sanctification or the process of becoming like Jesus. And as we grow in our Christian maturity, we should become, as Dallas Willard referred to, as a non-anxious presence. We should become at peace with the people we were made to be, realizing that, that who we truly are is enough. We don't need to project this cleaned up, perfect version of ourselves to God or to others. We can, we can be fully at, at a work in progress. And we can know that even if the storms of life feel overwhelming, and even if they almost fully take us out, we have peace with God. We've been made right with him because of what Jesus did on the cross. And God doesn't look to our righteousness or ability to perform, our perfection in order to accept us and be at peace with us. When we received the free gift of God in Jesus Christ, his righteousness became ours. And through his life and death and resurrection, we are saved. And that truth alone brings peace in the midst of trials. It's a journey and there's bumps along the road called life. But we can rest assured that God is using it all, the good, the bad, and the in-between to refine us and to make us more and more into the image of Jesus. Let's pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, we, we thank you again for, for this text, for these scriptures, for this letter from Paul, your servant, and specifically for these verses around worry and anxiety and conflict and the source of peace. And, and I, I pray that you would help us to lean into this peace, that you would help us to to, to bring our petitions before you with thanksgiving, knowing that you are in control, that you see so much more than we see. Help us to meditate and to ponder the goodness of God and the reality of our, our, our position before you. And help us to, to continually put these things into practice, to, as Eugene Peterson says, to commit to a long obedience in the same direction, stumbling as we may, but always moving towards the prize that's found in you. We love you, Jesus. Continue the work you started in us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.